0: We've been, uh, for our Advent series, we've been going through a portion of the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing little section of scripture because uh, it's a genealogy, which was a big deal in the old world, uh, but in that genealogy it includes five women, uh, which was a totally unheard thing of, and in each of those little stories, Holy Spirit superintended to have those women's names placed in that genealogy for a reason, to remind us or to, to encourage us in our faith, uh, but also to remind us of God's, even more God's faithfulness to us. And in the, in, in the, the remarkable way that only God can, he weaves through all of these little stories and narratives, the grand narrative of his salvation that he's working on the earth. And so today, uh, we first we did the story of Tamar, uh, the remarkable, surprising story of Tamar, we did uh, the story of Rahab, and today we get to the story of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is one of only two books in the, uh, in the, in, in the Bible that's named after a woman. Uh, it is only, it's the only book in the Old Testament, with maybe the exception of Job, that's named after a non-Israelite. It's named after a foreigner. And so that should tell us some things right, up, right off the bat. Uh, the problem that we're going to have is in the other stories, they were a chapter or a few paragraphs. But Ruth is four chapters over a whole book. So our game plan, or my game plan is, we're going uh, to read some of the most important passages. I'm going to summarize some of it. And in your, in your worship guides, you'll see that it's all, all in one spot. But I think what, I'm gonna, what I've decided to do is break it into pieces so that will do, each, each section of the narrative will do for each point of the sermon that it's relating to, and that'll, rather than reading for, you know, a big chunk up front and then we all forget it, we'll, we'll take it a little piece at a time, and then I'll try to fill some stuff in, some summary stuff, uh, so that we can get, really what we're trying to get is the big picture of the big idea of the story. So please don't stand up, it's going to be a lot of reading today. Uh, but that's good because no matter what I preach today, at least we're going to get a lot of the, written, uh, the spoken word of God. So at least we're going to get that right, okay? So we're in, we're in good shape. Uh, okay, so here we go. Let's listen intently to God's inerrant word. This is Ruth. We're going to start with Ruth chapter 1 uh, all the way through ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were were Melon and Kilon. And they were Ephraithites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilon died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she sent out she set out from the place where she was with her two with her. Two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go, return, each of you, to his mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you, if you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I just read a, uh, uh, an article about how, uh, a secular article talking about how t- 2019 was the year of the ex-evangelical. I don't know if you've heard that term or not, but it's a term that was coined a few years ago to talk about people who were raised in the evangelical tradition, uh, and for various reasons over the course of time had lost their faith in the tradition that they had grown up in, and they uh, have they tagged themselves, tagged themselves with the name ex-evangelical. They may not have exactly all of them might have not have lost their faith, but they've certainly lost touch with the faith that they grew up with, and it's a a, a a place where people are asking questions about serious doubts and concerns that they have. There were some monumental bombshells in in 2019 that that caused this article to claim that it was the year of the exangelical. A Big one was Joshua Harris, who was a leader in the purity culture of the church. Uh, He, uh, at the end of the day, had decided uh, he ended up leaving the church, leaving his wife, and if you read between the lines of his renunciation of his faith, ironically, uh, he left over the seeming unfairness and implausibility of the Christian sexual ethic. He went way one way, <laughs> way the other way. Uh, another one, Marty Sampson, Hillsong worship leader. Hillsong worship leader, like the flagship of evangelical worship. Uh, he left because of scandals in the church, what he saw as evil and suffering in the world and how a good God could send people to hell and just the judgmental nature of Christians and, and from his renunciation, he said something very telling. He said in the, in the midst of his renunciation, he said, he says, lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Uh, and maybe the one that most fascinates me or the one I've read the most about and really thought the most about is, is Lisa Gungor. She's the wife of, of Michael Gungor. They were evangelical megachurch worship leaders who slowly drifted away from the faith. And as Lisa tells her story, uh, they just had a lot of questions about how, why life was so hard and a lot of questions about why things seemed to be so difficult in the Christian faith. And why it was that God would allow these bad things to happen to, to, to them and to other people they knew. And it all came to a head one day when they were, uh, providentially, she and her husband were touring Auschwitz. And she received a call from her family members. She wrote, was growing up in the was in the charismatic tradition. She received a call from one of her family members saying that their cousin of hers who had been diagnosed with cancer had been miraculously healed. And she went into this, this week-long period of going back and forth. Well, I really want that. I really want to believe that. And, but on the other hand, I'm just walking through Auschwitz. How is it even, how, how do I reconcile this? How is it fair that God heals my cousin but ignores the pleas of the people who were here in this death camp uh, and other people? How does God have the right to heal some and not heal others? And then the bombshell comes, another family member calls her back and explains that he wasn't really healed all the way, but it was a partial healing, and she was just like, you know what, I'm just over this whole thing, and she dumped her faith. And she says in her renunciation, this is what was telling about her renunciation, she says, I keep... uh, She said that was the rock bottom, that moment. It was the point in her life in which she felt the most just depression and desperation. And she says the core question, the thing that kept coming to her mind, that it all boiled down to was love. What do I believe about love, she said. Love is the whole story that I bought into about Jesus. So what do I believe in? And the telling thing, the telling thing about it is if you read if you read her renunciation and confession, what she talks about, her definition of love is, is God's blessing in this life. And it just didn't make sense to her how God could withhold blessing in this life. If you read all their stories, and we could, we could talk about a lot more, the common thread that runs all through them is that they all, they all grew up in this tradition, evangelicalism, which is full of this teaching and this understanding uh, that the core of Christianity and that the core of the promises of God and what God is really promising to us in the gospel and in the church and in the faith is they'll smooth out our lives, that he's going to bless us in certain ways, that we are going to receive a, like a, a fullness and, a, and a, an ease in life in one way or another, that it's about blessing and healing and fulfillment in this life. Uh, And when each one of them began to get the sense that in their faith, they were walking into what felt like a wasteland, they started to have questions and doubts. And those wastelands could look very different, sometimes sometimes. They felt they were walking into a social wasteland where they were losing their reputation and friendships and social contacts and were becoming a a pariah in society. Uh, Some of them felt like they were walking into economic wasteland, that they were cutting themselves off from being able to really excel uh, in the world and excel in their careers. And some of them felt like they were walking into sexual wastelands, that they were being cut off or deprived from these fundamental basic human needs, and they just couldn't imagine. They just couldn't imagine that. And and so, according to their religious upbringings, as God was leading them into these wastelands or apparent wastelands, where well, they were losing economic prosperity, social connections, sexual freedoms. It felt like the lack of the love of God. It felt like a wasteland, like God was depriving them from, from things and, his, and from everything they knew from what they'd been taught. God would never do that to someone. God would never do that to me. The whole point of Christianity it's to bring goodness and blessing into my life. And if it's not doing that, why on earth would I be a part of it? And so they cut. They cut out. Now, you ask, that's a question I just asked. I mean, Christianity is meant to bring goodness and blessing into your life. Why else would you do it? What's the answer to that? The answer is yes. <laughs> But no, the answer is yes, that is what God is doing. But no, it's almost never gonna look like what you think it looks like. It's almost never gonna look like what you think it looks like. Uh, And there's almost always a period of walking through the veil that's purposeful. God purposefully puts us into trouble and hardship as part, of his bringing goodness and blessing into our lives. And that's what, if you don't have the right perspective on that, when those things happen, when you feel the wasteland, you can feel uh, like you tried Christianity and it just didn't work. But the story of Ruth, why am I saying all that? The story of Ruth, as I read through it and meditated on it, the story of Ruth is really, it's a polar opposite of exangelicalism. The story of Ruth is a picture of people who are looking forward into a bleak reality and, and, and walking forward in faith because of love. And then in the midst of that and through that, God does something remarkable and amazing and surprising that nobody saw coming. And that's kind of the story of what God does. It's the story of the gospel. It's the story of Ruth. And so really the big idea... Of the book is that is that is this that when we when we embrace the hardships of faith, God comes through in surprising ways through Jesus, our great covenant Lord. When we embrace hardships of faith, God comes through in surprising ways through Christ, our great Redeemer. Let's get you that one, great Redeemer. So let's look at that one part at a time. When we embrace the hardships of faith. Both Naomi and Ruth in the beginning of this story are walking into the wasteland. Naomi's plight is that she, her husband, Elimelech, which ironically means God is king, at some point in time gave up on God's blessings and left the promised land to try out his fortunes in a foreign land. In a land that was actually the enemies of God's people. Her husband, Elimelech, rolled the dice and lost And in the process, they lost their land, Uh, they became alienated from their people, and then Elimelech himself died, and then Naomi's sons died, and then Naomi was stuck in this foreign land with no husband, with no heirs, no social protection whatsoever on the top or the bottom, just the two daughter-in-laws from her dead husband's. And the best prospect that she could think of, really the best prospect that she had, was to go back to Israel uh, and as a beggar, basically, glean in the fields of Israel. In the Old Testament, uh, they were com- the, the people were commanded when they harvested their crops, harvested their fields, they weren't allowed to, they were supposed to not take everything from the field but leave some behind for sojourners and foreigners and aliens. And that was the social the social safety net, that was the welfare program of the day. However, this is the time of the judges, and it's scandalous, and everybody's dirty, and nobody's following the rules, and Naomi's heading back to Israel, not knowing whether or not she's actually going to even be able to do that, because maybe no one's going to even let her. And Ruth's plight is even worse. Her plight, we pick this up from from two random passages that are kind of thrown out in the story. The first is, is chapter 2, verse 8. The man Boaz is talking to Ruth, and he says to her, he says, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And then to give some more definition to that, Naomi says this to her a little later in the chapter. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Now, what does that mean? What it means is, Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites are historic enemies of God. In the Exodus, when God's people came out and were headed to the promised land, the Moabites refused to let the Israelites come through. Uh, the Moabites, uh, the Moabites tricked the Israelites. Uh, the women, the Moabite women, tricked the Israelites into entering into sexual immorality with them, which caused a big plague in Israel. And so Moabites were saw as enemies of God, uh, as enemies of the people, as enemies of their country. And even worse than that, Moabite women were seen as scandalous, undesirable. Wicked, immoral, uh, terrible women. And because of that, for Naomi to go into Israel with no protection, she would be fair game for any Israelite men or any Israelite women to do with her what they wanted if they caught her, if they caught her on her own. And as far as gleaning goes, she had even less chance than Naomi of finding someone who would allow an enemy of God and a scandalous, sinful woman, of the, someone who had the reputation of the bad girl to come into their fields and reap and glean after their workers. Uh, so their expectation, this, here's the point, their expectation as they're walking back from Moab to Israel isn't necessarily, we're going back into the promised land where there's plenty and milk and honey and all that. They're walking back into Israel uh, and they don't know what's gonna happen. What they know is that at best, they're walking, Ruth at least, is walking into a hostile, potentially violent, uh, lawless culture that hated her and would think of her as a scandalous and immoral woman Uh, I would have no love for her whatsoever. That was her expectation as she walked in. It kind of gives us a little bit of a contrast here. On one hand, it gives us Naomi. Uh, Naomi, when she comes back into Israel, it causes a big stir and a big scandal. Uh, The women come to her and and they say, is this Naomi? And her response She says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means sweet. (laughs) It means pleasant. (laughs) And she is so distraught of what has happened that she says, change my name, call me Mara, which means bitter and bitterness. Because I went out from here full and I have come back empty handed. She is convinced, just like Job, that God has stretched his hand out against her and has purposely punish her. She sees the tragedy and the calamity in her life as a as a as a punishment of God. And man, we can all relate to that. Is that not the first, is that not the go-to position? At least one of the first few. If something tragic happens, something bad happens. I mean I, I did it this morning. <laughs> this morning, I'm like, I mean the uh, uh, got the kids to worry about, nieces like jacked up with her leg up. I'm like trying to get the sermon done and I'm thinking, I'm sitting there this morning finishing up the last parts, wondering if I'm gonna get it done or not and I'm thinking to myself, God's punishing me because I wasted some time this week. (laughs) (laughs) That was my go-to. I I do it all the time, right? Do it all the time. And listen, if your faith is centered in, the, in, in, in Christianity being a religion where God is just like unilaterally you know, blessing you and providing you with, 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 with blessing and freedom and peace and fun and good stuff, if you're, that's the center of your Christian faith, and those thoughts come and can drive you into deep despair, and the result can be detachment, deconversion, deconstruction. That's what happens. Now listen, I'm trying to, the big point in this is not that Naomi should have had more faith. A lot of people might look at this and say, see, Naomi was faithless. Ruth was faithful. Be like Ruth. (laughs) Ding. (laughs) But that's not it. Because every one of us in that situation would have been like Naomi. Naomi. Ain't nobody in this room would have been a Ruth. I don't care, I don't care who you are. Nobody would have been involved. My husband and my sons just died. i got no money. I have no prospects. I'm going to be a homeless beggar for the rest of my life. Ding! Praise the Lord. Listen, Na- it was right. It's a human reaction. Naomi There's no way she's going to get around feeling that kind of despair. And that's just, that is the human condition. She hasn't lost faith. That's the point. She hasn't lost faith. What she has done is lost sight of what God is doing in the midst of the tragedy. Because the irony or uh, like the secret thing that we can see but Naomi can't, is that even as Naomi has given up all hope and is literally saying, I have come back empty, God has abandoned me, uh, the source of her hope is literally standing right next to her. (laughs) She just can't see it because it hasn't played out yet. But we can see it, and the point is God is showing us. that Even when it's the absolute darkest, even if you can't see it, there's the glimmer of hope is there, and God is working. In some way, the seed of God's salvation and redemption is right there with you, even when you can't see it, even when you're not in an emotional ability to even comprehend it or begin to think about it, but God is still there. And the big second point of this is, really this is, 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 one of the, is what's really astonishing about this is that this moment... Of tragedy and disaster and hopelessness is the moment when Ruth converts to faith. <laughs> she looks ahead and says, We got no prospects. 50 50 chance that we'll be able to even glean as beggars in Israel. Um, I'm going into a culture where everyone is going to hate me, uh, everyone is going to think, uh, think that my reputation is poor. That I'm a scandalous immoral woman, that I'm an enemy of God, I'm fair game for anyone who wants to assault me. And Ruth puts on her game face and says, Let's do this. Let's go. She embraces the hardships of the faith, and she straps in and she goes, and she goes in, come what may. Listen to, her. Listen to her confession. She says, in the middle of all that, she says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And she carries it all the way out to the end. She just, you know, it's, she includes that whole This is where I'm going to die. This is where I'm going to be buried. Why? She doesn't have the short view. You know, in the Gospels, it talks about counting the cost. And sometimes we think about, you know, like, we think, well, is it worth it? Is the hardship worth it? Well, it's bringing our attention to the fact that coming into the Christian faith is coming into, oftentimes, hardship and difficulty. But what it is doing, it's not causing us to focus on that. It's causing us, it's it's calling us. To see the trade-off. What's the trade? I'm giving up this life, and I'm gaining heaven. I'm giving up. I'm entering into the wasteland of relationships, the social wasteland, the economic wasteland, the sexual wasteland. Yes, but I'm a sojourner through this wilderness for a short time, and on the other end, the next life that's promised to me is so much better that it's worth it. It's way worth it. And Ruth, in this moment, which is astonishing, she makes that confession of faith and she moves in. And the chapter, this part of the, the book, in all that hardship, it ends with this little glimmer of hope. And here it is it says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. whose name was Boaz. They introduce that it's the beginning of the barley harvest, and they introduce that there's a man named Boaz. Now, let's go to the second part, that God comes through in surprising ways. When we embrace the hardships of faith, God comes through in surprising ways. What if, what if God told you that you were going to be the catalyst for a great revival? What if he said that through you, tens of thousands of people, thousands of people are going to come to faith? Uh, that in that, you are going to establish deep community. That you're going to be part of a purpose greater than yourself. That you're going to have fulfillment in your work and what you do. Uh, that you're going to see God working up close and personal. You're going to see power in your prayers and people coming to faith. Uh, you're going to see miraculous things happen. You're going to have a deep sense of fulfillment and joy. What would you say? Would you say, sign me up? we would say, yes, I'll totally be that. I mean, maybe for, those, you know, for pastors, ministry leaders, we have more of a draw to that. But I think anybody would be like, yeah, if God want to use me in that big way, I'd totally do it. But what if God said, you're going to do that through prison ministry. <laughs> and I don't mean going to Donovan once a weekend. I mean, you're going to get arrested. <laughs> you're going to go to prison. You're going to spend seven years in prison. And in that seven years in prison, all that's going to happen. That's actually a true story. And, and there's a, a guy in China. I, his name is Uncle Z. His name was Zhang. He was sentenced to seven years in prison He was part of a a Voice of the Martyrs prison alert, and 5,000 people signed a petition to the Chinese government to release him, and at the end of his seven-year term, when he was interviewed, he said, he said, I thank you so much for your care for me and for all the effort you put in to release me from prison, but I am so glad that you failed. (laughs) And he was like, why? Why would that be? And he's like, because while I was in prison, there were 5,000 men In our prison, and in my time in prison, I was able to share the gospel with a core group of men, and then those men became saved, and they they started other groups. And by the time I left the prison, all 5,000 men in that prison had had a chance to hear the gospel, and many of them converted, and we created in that prison this deep, wonderful community of fellowship and brotherhood. And we were part of this greater purpose that that was so much bigger than us in our lives, and we saw God work in astonishing, miraculous ways, and we had a sense of deep fulfillment and deep joy in what God was doing, and if you had got me out, I would have missed all of that good stuff. Now, I don't want to go to prison, man. I don't want to leave my wife and my kids behind, you know, and Lord willing, I won't. As long as I don't hang out with Brian too much, I won't go to prison. (laughs) But... The point of the story is that, you know, we're, we, we seek after God's redemption and, and, and all of those things it's purpose, fulfillment, joy. And we always see, we tend to seek after it in all these other ways, but God usually comes through in these really surprising ways to make all that happen. And that's kind of the uh, the twist in this story. As Naomi and Ruth, they go into the promised land, and their expectation is poverty uh, and and disaster. God works in these crazy, surprising ways, and as they brace for a life of hardship, uh, God does something remarkable. As they come into the land, Ruth... Takes the initiative. She goes out to try to find a place to glean, uh, which is to go after the the people who are harvesting and take up the the leftover wheat and the barley. And as the story goes through, I'm going to summarize a little bit. As the story goes on, she finds a field where a helper uh, has mercy on her and allows her to come into the field. And then later on, the owner of the field shows up and says, Who's this girl? and he tells her who she is and the word has gotten out that she has given up everything to protect her mother-in-law who's an Israelite and to come into their country with them and this man Boaz shows great favor on her lets her like basically act like one of the harvesters to eat with the harvest harvesting women to be protected from uh any men that might be there to go and drink from the well from the well whenever she wants and she she gets this enormous amount of grain that's going to take care of her and Naomi easy for the whole year. And then at the end of that, let's go back to the scriptures. In verse uh, chapter 2, verse 19, there's what Naomi says. She says, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man... The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. She is super excited. Why? Because in Israel, in ancient Israel, the social net was if you were destitute, if you lost your husband, you lost your heirs, and we talked about this with Tamar, The nearest living relative had a right, even an obligation, to redeem you, to redeem your land, to redeem you from slavery if you had sold yourself into slavery, or to marry you so that he could produce heirs for you, so that you would have heirs and protection and a heritage in the land of Israel. To get your land back, to be freed from slavery, to be given a name and a place and 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 freedom and belonging and a place in the community of Israel again. A redeemer the Hebrew goel could do all that in just one fell swoop and this man who she happened to randomly walk into his field was the redeemer and so Naomi tells her what to do. He tells her go when he goes down to bed at night by the grain go to him and, and go uh, pick up the blanket by his feet and lay down And when he wakes up, propose marriage. (laughs) And so here's what she did. And so her mother-in-law said to her, nope, skip down, three, six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, to us, that sounds kind of scandalous, right? Here she, like, sneaks into the camp, crawls into bed with him at midnight, and we're like, what's up? I guess those rumors are true. Uh, But that's not what's happening. Ruth is going to Boaz, and she's proposing marriage to him. She's, going, she's coming to him and saying, you are our redeemer. You are a redeemer for myself and my mother-in-law, and you have the power to make everything right again. You have the power to pull us out of destitution. You have the power to, to free us from the slavery that, we've, that we're in and as, 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 as gleaners and as, as, as being locked into poverty. You have the power to redeem and restore us to the land. And you have the power to give us heirs so that myself and my mother-in-law will be protected and secure in the commonwealth of Israel. And listen, this is a big ask. Why is that? Because Boaz gets nothing out of this deal. He pays a bunch of money to the guy who has their ancestral land but he doesn't get to keep the land. He creates heirs, but the heirs aren't his. The heirs are somebody else's. It's the point, this is a completely gracious transaction. Boaz gets nothing out of the deal other than uh, the joy of being able to redeem his people. It's all grace, and in one big swoop, Boaz says, I'll do it. I, as the Redeemer, will restore the land to Israel, I will marry the Gentile bride, and I will make everything right in his gracious transaction at great personal cost to himself. Bringing Ruth into the commonwealth of Israel. Now, Obviously, there's a bigger picture we can see coming out of this, right? The bigger picture is it's the grand narrative that God weaves through all these little stories through the whole Bible. He, he weaves the grand story of redemption into all these little stories so that we can better understand what it means. for that. What is he doing? How is he redeeming the world? How is he redeeming his people? And the bigger picture is that God comes in through surprising ways through Jesus, who is our great redeemer. That those words that Ruth used, that actually that Boaz used, that the author of this story uses to weave in and out together, are, are beautifully put together. Boaz says, Boaz says to Naomi or to Ruth when he first sees her. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done for your mother-in-law, full reward. And may the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then Ruth takes that same language and weaves it into her proposal to Boaz, saying, you are the Redeemer, spread your wings over your servant. And that language is being borrowed from all over the Old Testament as a, 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 where God is saying that he is doing the same thing for his covenant people. Here's the best one. Listen to this is Ezekiel 16 verse 8. This is God speaking to Israel and he says he says when I passed by you again and saw you behold I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God. And you became mine. I could, I could run through 20 more passages in the Old Testament and then going into the New Testament that have that same idea of theme threaded through it of God placing his covering over us, using the corners of his garment, covering our nakedness, covering our sin, and covering uh, our wickedness, uh, and making us his through his covenant, promises to us. And so, who's this talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the great Redeemer. Jesus, we like Naomi, we've lost our inheritance. Jesus as our Redeemer has restored us to our inheritance. We have, we're in slavery to sin and death. Jesus, our Redeemer, has redeemed us and given us redemption from sin and death we had no future we had no hope in the world and jesus our great redeemer by his blood has redeemed us and restored us and brought us who were far off who were gentiles into the commonwealth of israel and in one fell swoop jesus the greater redeemer in one magnificent act of redemption he restores israel to the covenant He marries the Gentile bride, brings her into the commonwealth, and we all celebrate together at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, How do we know? Listen to the epilogue. Here's the epilogue. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, Wow, this bombshell right at the end of the story. It tells us, why is this story here? What's going on? It's this grand narrative of the story of redemption, the narrative form in these pictures of these people. when it's also a part of the, and ties it in at the end of all of it moving forward in the promise of the seed of the Messiah into David, and then Father David into David's greater son, into Jesus, into the redemption that we all have, right? And so it's, an, it, it's a little story, it tells us the big story, the obvious one, that Boaz, for us, picture of Jesus, who has redeemed us from sin and death at his great expense in a completely gracious exchange, it shows us in Ruth a picture of the faithful church, the way that God sees us because he sees us through the lens of Christ. The faithful church that in all hardship and faith just clings to Jesus. Why? Because God is clinging to us. But even in the picture of Naomi, the picture of Naomi who is in her bitterness when she sees the redemption working out, is is filled with joy and and is restored and given a whole new family, which we're given in the church. And the, the underlying theme that through the whole thing, even in the depths of her bitterness, the redemption of God was literally right there with her and that we can, if we look, we can find it and have hope. And even if you're, last word, even if you're Orpah, I think this story has something to say. If you or anyone listening to this, a lot of people listen to this online, if you're thinking about that whole ex-evangelical thing, it's not that God has failed, it's that we're looking at it in the wrong way and we're looking at the wrong promises. And we see it in the right way and we see it in the right perspective. All of it makes sense and we can see how it is that God is redeeming us and that the promises are for us. And that no matter, even if you have turned around and have walked the other way, it's never too late to turn back around and come back in because everybody, everybody is welcome at the table. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's beautiful. We thank you that you've told us these stories of beauty and light, of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would rest in our Redeemer, that we would rest in his finished work. Lord, we pray that like Ruth, Lord, you would help us to trust you in the hardship of life, knowing that our certain future is better and worth everything that you providentially allow in this life. And like Naomi, Lord, we pray that in our bitterness and despair, you would help us to find the thread of hope that's always there with us. And like Orpah, Lord, if we've turned from you and if we've walked away, if we've become discouraged because we were hoping in the wrong things, we pray that you would give us a fresh vision of Jesus and that you would bring us home, Lord.